Father in heaven, we are just so thankful for this privilege we have of being together at camp meeting. We know your spirit has been present, Lord, and I pray today it would be no different that the Spirit of God would open our understanding and speak to us personally, Lord. We want to know how we can be closer to you and more fully reflect you to those around us. We want people who come in contact with us to know that we know and have spent time with Jesus. So, Father, this is our prayer this morning. We pray it in his name and for his sake, Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, today we're picking up, this is part two of reading Ellen White's. And we're going to take some of the principles. I, this was a hard one today. I'm, there's a lot I'm covering in not just reading this. I'm kind of merging things together. What I'm saying is, we're going to look at some of Ellen White's statements on different, different topics and apply the hermeneutical principles so you get an idea how to rightly divide the word of truth versus wrongly dividing. Um, but there are just so many things that I had to choose what to cover, and there's a lot of things that I would have liked to go into, but there is time that explanation takes, so um, you'll just bear with me with what I do share. I think it will be helpful. I do want to start out with this, though. Hermeneutical principles or principles of interpretation that help you to interpret what you're reading don't do much good if you're not reading right? Principles of interpretation for what you read only help what you read. And I'm going to tell you that I'm, I'm concerned that Seventh-day Adventists are not availing themselves of this gift that God has given. And I don't understand it. I honestly don't. I've been reading Ellen White's writings. I'm not saying that's all you need to read, but I'll be honest with you. I don't read a whole lot other than that in the Bible just because of sake of time. And I'm going to tell you that I've read stuff again and again, and I get new stuff out of it every time. It's the nature of inspired writings. And so, when people say, yeah, I've read that before, like, really? Yeah, I ate spaghetti 20 years ago, I'm not going to eat again. Really? So, I just, anyway, I will continue. Let me show you this statement found in the book Testimonies, Volume 4, page 390 and 391. It says, the volumes of spirit of prophecy and also the testimonies should be introduced in every Sabbath-keeping family, and the brethren should know their value and be urged to read them. They should be in the library of every family and read again and... Again, let them be kept where they can be read by many, and let them be worn out in being read by all the neighbors. Now, that's interesting, isn't it? Now, she continues on, and then a paragraph later says this, Many are going directly contrary to the light which God has given to his people, because what? They do not read the books which contain the light and knowledge and cautions, reproofs and warnings. Can you imagine? So inadvertently, I may be going contrary to the will of God simply because I won't avail myself of the light he's given. And I know that you, camp meeting folks, you don't want to be going contrary to the will of God. You're here because you want to do the will of God. But part of the thing that aids us in that is availing ourselves of the light God gives in his word and through this gift of prophecy. Um, and I want to encourage that. Now, I want to review our basic rules of interpretation that we're going to look at this morning. We talked about four rules of interpretation. You'll find them on the screen. We want to consider the internal context. That is what's involved in the very statement itself or readings, clause, uh, uh, wording and phrases and all that stuff. Consider the external context, anything external, other passages, cultural settings, etc. We want to learn to differentiate between policy and principle because Principles change over time. I'm sorry, policies change over time, but the principles behind them stay the same. 
And then we want to be willing, most of all, to follow the truth. Jesus said that if we will to do his will, God makes his, known tr his truth known to us. And I've got to take a breath trying to talk too fast, thinking of what I'm going to cover here. But we're going to apply these principles in a few different statements so that you get an understanding. We looked at them and we gave some examples yesterday. But I want to give you some examples, some more practical examples today. The first one is a series of statements that Ellen White made on eating eggs. And I think this is very, it may be confusing at first, but it should be very helpful. Now here's a statement we find in Testimonies, Volume 2, page 399. And Ellen White says here, eggs should not be placed upon your table. They are an injury to your children. Now the first thing you want to understand is the, the way the testimonies were written. Many of these were personal letters. Some of them were, were written for the whole church. But many were personal letters to personal people who had specific issues to their case. And so when Ellen White, uh, the Lord had led Ellen White, and she talks about this in another place, to reprint those testimonies for the benefit of others who may be struggling with the same problems, but to remove the personal information. And so that's why you'll find Brother A and Sister B and Brother C. And incidentally, Brother A isn't Brother Andros. It's all in order. So if you go through a series of testimonies, it's just A, B, C, D, D, and just randomly put in there. But the point is, the personal information is taken out. What we need to understand from the get-go is that testimony was written to a specific case that may not fit me hand in glove. You understand what I'm saying? I don't know, and it doesn't say right here, why the eggs were an injury to the children. I don't know the situation of that family. But just looking at that statement again, we're going to contrast it with some other ones. They should not be placed on your table. That's pretty plain. Don't eat it. Now, I could take this statement right here and say, look, saints, it's clear through inspiration. God told Ellen White we shouldn't be eating eggs. But then we come to this statement. This is in Testimonies, Volume 9, page 162. While dangers have been given regarding the... I'm sorry, while warnings have been given regarding the dangers of disease through butter and the evil of the free use of eggs by small children, yet we should not consider it a violation of principle to use eggs from hens that are well cared for and suitably fed. Now notice this. Same statement. Eggs contain properties that are what? What, what is remedial? What's a word that that comes from? Remedy. Is that good for you or bad for you? Eggs contain properties that are remedial agencies in counteracting certain poisons. So in the first statement, hey, eggs should never appear on your table. And now here's a statement from the same prophet that says, you know, there are limitations I would put on this, and we could conjecture as to cholesterol and, you know, things like that. She says, uh, eggs that are taken from hens that are suitably cared for, should not, you shouldn't consider that a violation of principle. So it sounds like a contradiction, doesn't it? And now go to this next one. This it even gets more fun. Look at this council that was written. We find this in Councils on Diet and Foods, page 204. Writing to a specific individual, I'll explain in a moment. Put into your diet something you have left out. It is, it is what? It's your duty to do this. Get what? Eggs of healthy fowls. Use these eggs cooked or raw. Do not for a moment suppose that it will not be right to do this. Now why might the person have supposed it might not be right? Well, he, he read another passage somewhere, and she's trying to clarify the situation. I'm going to explain in a minute, because I know right now you guys are scratching your head and saying, well, now that's crazy. Let's continue. Oh, no, no, no. Let, well, so I could, that's, there's more to that statement, but here's the background. Here's what you need to understand. 
Again, the first situation, I don't know who that statement was written to. I don't know the exact situation that they were dealing with. Maybe they had a, a, a history of high cholesterol in the family or something. I don't know. Then that middle statement was more saying, you know, eggs have good things about them, but I wouldn't make that your own article of diet. And again, I'm just conjecturing as to uh, what we know today about the fat content and whatever, cholesterol content, whatever. But then you come to that last statement. So the first statement basically says, don't eat eggs. The second statement says, sometimes eat eggs. And the last statement says, you better eat eggs. Right? Well, that last statement was actually written to a doctor, Dr. Cress, uh, who was in Australia, I want to say at the time. And he had been, he had adopted in the States, he had adopted a total vegetarian, or we might call a vegan diet today. But when he went to Australia or wherever he was in the mission field, if I have that right, he didn't have the access to the same kinds of foods. And he began to suffer from a B12 deficiency. The man was actually dying. He was very sick. And the Lord gave this message to Sister White to send to the brother, and that's why she's so emphatic. Look, do this, and don't fight me on it. <laughs> and Dr. Kress took the counsel, and his health was restored. Now, the point here is simply to help us to understand this is we can look at the time and place aspect of statements Ellen White has made. We can look at the believing all that the prophets have spoken. If I were to counsel somebody and say, listen, it's plain in the spirit of prophecy that you shouldn't eat eggs, remember that the goal of hermeneutics or proper interpretation, rightly dividing the word of truth, is to properly convey the original intent of the author, Right? If I told somebody, look, if I said categorically, you guys, you guys shouldn't be eating eggs, am I communicating the intent of the author? No, suddenly I'm putting my own spin on it and trying to put her stamp on it, right? If I go the other way and say, oh, Sister White says everybody here ought to be eating eggs, would that be the original intent of the author? No. And so you can see that if you read isolated things here and there and you don't research a little bit and due diligence in study of anything, you might come up with the wrong conclusion. And then, what does Paul say to Timothy? Then you need to be ashamed. A worker who, he wants us to be workers who don't need to be ashamed. Now, moving from, moving from, do you follow what we went over there? Moving from eggs to cheese. Let's talk about cheese for a minute. Cheese, boy, this is a battleground in the Adventist church today. Now, this is a statement. Uh, Ministry of Healing, page 302. Butter is less harmful when eaten on cold bread than when used in cooking. But as a rule, it is better to dispense with it altogether. Cheese is still more objectionable. It is wholly unfit for food. Now, you don't get, language doesn't get plainer than that. And let me tell you something. When I was an early Adventist and I read that statement and I had come to the conviction that Ellen White was a prophet of God and what she wrote was inspired, which it is, I read that statement and I said, that settles it. I'm not going to eat cheese at all. And I didn't. And it was probably the best, one of the best things I did. But now let me tell you something. One of the challenges I had, and brothers and sisters, do not miss this. I went to other, I was a new Adventist. I went to more experienced church members looking for help and they're like, oh, that stuff doesn't apply anymore. I couldn't accept it because I knew it applied. I knew it was true. I knew it was inspired. And I would have wished for somebody who, had, who could have guided me in a positive way to understand proper interpretation. Now, I'll tell you what changed with me. You have to understand that this statement puts cheese in the category of unclean foods. It's not moderation. It's never. Okay? 
And so I was reading in her writings, and I found a place where she talks about how they, her and James were traveling, and she had a little bit of tea. I thought, well, wait a minute. There's another statement she makes where it says it should never enter the human stomach. So then I read she had a little bit of a hypocrite. What's, she, what's that about, right? But the clincher for me was in di- different statements I would read is I read a statement that she wrote to the wife of D.M. Canwright. Now, D.M. Canwright and his wife, Lucretia, had actually lived with James and Ellen White for a while. And so Lucretia had bought some cheese and then she kept it in the house there and had said, well, I bought it because James had been telling the guy who came with the wagon from the general store that I wouldn't mind a taste of cheese. And so I bought it for him. Well, that was convenient. And then, so they have this dialogue. But, but Ellen White in this, and I'm not going to tell you the whole story. I'm, I'm tempted. You can see I'm tempted to right now. But the point is that in the context of that, she says that you bought the cheese, but she says it lay in the cupboard untouched until the guests came over. And I thought to myself, we've never kept cheese in the cupboard. I would hope you don't, if you have cheese in your home, keep it in the cupboard. Why wouldn't we do that? Because, well, let me share with you an explanatory note in the, oh, this is the wrong, I'm sorry, I have the wrong reference here. This first reference I'm going to quote Jerry Moon in a minute, and, and uh, it should say Standish, so I messed that all up. Uh, it's, it's Jerry Moon and uh, Tim Standish in the book Understanding Ellen White, but this particular slide is an explanatory note from the Ellen White estate in the book Ministry of Healing where that statement appears. And they say, if you note on the screen, the same chemical constituents and physical properties that recommend milk as a human food make it an excellent food for what? Well, anybody should know that about milk, dairy products, and what have you. So you take an excellent food for bacteria and just put it in the cupboard. Okay, now you add to that that there was no such thing as pasteurization then. And there was no such thing as refrigeration then. Well, there, wasn't, there was such thing, but it wasn't like refrigerators. You understand that? Could those factors play into things? They certainly could. So anyway, that got me researching. I'm just telling you my little journey. So I thought, okay, I've got to understand more about this. And as I began to read, I found a few different things. Um, Just for way of reference, I did say I was going to cite this book. There is a chapter called Ellen White and Science in this book, uh, Understanding Ellen White, if you can pull that up on the screen. And in that chapter, um, it's again Jerry Moon and Tim Standish, not Standing. I don't know what I was thinking about. Understand, well, understanding is what, anyway. This chapter addresses 13 statements by Ellen White that some believe are in direct or partial conflict with current understandings in the natural sciences. Dr. Knight, in his book, brings up that there are these things that, you know, we've seen that Ellen White, her explanations of science aren't accurate. They've undertaken in that chapter to show the exact opposite. You're always going to have people say, oh, she was off on this, that, or the other. But I'm going to tell you, when we research it, it's not so. Now, in that chapter of 13 things, one of the things they address is the, the dangers of cheese eating. And they bring this up in the chapter, and I think it's a good point. You look on the screen. Legitimate concerns, including unhygienic dairy conditions, we've talked about that, lack of pasteurization, and hazardous methods of aging cheese, you'll see that in a moment, have been largely alleviated in developed countries. Things that were problems then, the processing has changed. 
If she were living today with improved processing, sanitation, and preservation, she might be more moderate in her condemnation. I believe that would be the case. That's what the position we take as a Seventh-day Adventist church. That's why some, I've had some Adventist members like, man, the church is going to apostasy because they won't enforce the cheese rule. Brothers and sisters, that's, we can't. We don't have the, we can, you can't make rules by yourself. You've got to have inspiration for it. And if you read broadly in this, you're going to find that uh, a lot of people have a, an understanding like one of those egg statements. Now, I, this is what I like to tell people. Adventists love their cheese. And so, you know, sometimes when I share this, it's like, hallelujah, hooray, more cheese for me. Let's just understand and be clear about something. What we, when we read Ellen White's writings, what we understand is, I would say fairly, and along with, like I said, many others, that we could take cheese out of the category of the unclean foods, but it doesn't put it in the category of health food. You understand what I'm saying there? So, now it's interesting in this exploration of this process that I found that in the, you know, that statement appears in the book Minister of Healing, cheese is wholly unfit for food. Do you understand that the German edition does not read that way? When translating the book into German, the editor's in Europe were concerned because cheese is a staple food of the poor Germans and they knew that the kind of cheese that the Germans were eating as their staple food was not the kind condemned by Ellen White but they didn't know how to translate it to communicate that. So they wrote a letter L.R. Conradi wrote a letter to W.C. White and he responded by this Commenting on Ministry of Healing, page 302, he said on page 302, second paragraph, last two lines, this was the recommendation from the White Estate, and I'm leaving a part out just for sake of time, where he said, I consulted with Mother, Ellen White was still alive, and said, what should we do? And she said, tell him this. And he said, this is what we've come up with. And it wasn't a, it wasn't a do, that you have to word it exactly this way. It's like, well, you'll see. Second paragraph, last two lines. Strong cheese is still more objectionable. This leaves off the sentence, it is wholly unfit for food, and gives cheese a qualifying adjective that is strong cheese. And the readers understood the distinction. Said, print it that way. And then he says, if strong is not the term you use to designate, notice, the ordinary cheese of commerce, which is old and full of poison, please designate by the proper term. Now, I have had conversations with a white estate, and I said, what is this ordinary cheese of commerce? Give me the background. They said, we don't know the background. We really don't know specifically what aspect of the cheese-making process that W.C. White was addressing, but evidently the readers did, and when the, the German publishers got that, they, in the German edition, this is what it would say if you read it in English, strong, sharp cheese should not be eaten. doesn't say wholly unfit for food or any of that. So all of those things together helped me to realize that there was more to the subject than I had previously seen. Now, I want to follow that up with a statement in regard to, oh, what could I say on this? We have a lot of battles on um, diet in the Adventist church, and I'll tell you why I think it is. Because diet's easier to change than unholy passion. I can change outward things a lot easier than I can change inward things. And I'm afraid, and I'm not, listen, I think... If anything, Adventists ought to be a little bit more particular as a rule with our health. I don't think as a rule, Seventh-day Adventists are just uber healthy. Um, I think there are some who are, and I think there are those on either extreme. But this is a statement that has meant a lot to me when we're talking about 
our health message in general. Notice or the diet reform specifically. Ellen White says the diet reform should be what? Progressive. I love that word progressive. That, what's the root word? Progress. What does that mean? This is what I've told my church members in the past. I'm not as nearly as concerned with where you are in your health practices as what direction you're going or whether you're going anywhere. Brothers and sisters, we are planning very soon, God willing, to make a transition from this earth to the eternal world. We're not going to be drinking there. We're not going to be smoking there. We're not, I remember when I had an evangelistic meeting and a guy comes up to me and says, his mother had passed away and he says, man, I can't, I can't wait to get to heaven. My mom made the best fried chicken. People came from all around to eat her fried chicken. I bet up in heaven right now, because he thought mom went away, there's got to be a long line of people just waiting in line to get her fried chicken. And I didn't have the heart to tell him, mom's not serving fried chicken up in heaven, it's fried chick. But I don't know. I don't know if that would fit either. But you know what I'm saying. Progressive. And notice her reasoning here. She says, as disease in animals increases, the use of milk and eggs will become more and more unsafe. And effort should be made to supply their place with other things that are healthful and inexpensive. So it needs to be progressive. We need to understand where things are heading. Now, there are people who want to make the rule as to when that unsafe time began. I'm not going to make that rule. I can't make that rule. Uh, but I think there ought to be progress. And, uh, you know, that's, that's the Lord's business. But I guess enough said on that at the moment. I want to move on to... Something, I was teaching a class on spirit of prophecy and a student in the class asked why it was wrong to swim on the Sabbath. It made me think of a, I have this, this um, somebody had given me this, this humorous list of reasons how to know you were raised SDA. How to know you were raised SDA. For example, you pronounce Adventist as Adventist, not Adventist. I found that to be all too true. Your little friend wasn't a person. You had an Uncle Arthur, Uncle Dan, and Aunt Sue, and we're amazed to find out that all your friends in Sabbath school did too. Right? You think of kids instead of cars when you hear the term Pathfinder. You have a board somewhere in the attic with a bunch of knots glued to it. We do. You can stack 3,000 calories on a plate at church potluck. And of course, in the list, had to be there, on Saturdays you catch yourself telling your children you can wade but don't swim. And so I had a student ask me, why is swimming on the Sabbath wrong? I'd never had that question asked me before. I thought that's interesting. And fortunately in these days, you just pull out your smart device and look it up and say, well, let's, let's look it up. And, and so there in the class, we looked up the statement. I'm going to share it with you and I want to think of this in context of these hermeneutical principles we've been looking at. Think through even the statement before you're even going everywhere else and talking about culture of the times and how times have changed. Just look at the statement. Now here's a piece of it. And then I'm going to give you, I'm going to do like the critics do. I'm going to give you a little piece and I'm not going to give you the surrounding context. Then I'm going to add the context. Pleasure seeking, ball playing, swimming was not a necessity but a sinful neglect of the sacred day sanctified by Jehovah. She sounds like such a killjoy. You can't do anything, you know? And this is where people come away. Now notice just the surrounding context. This is just comes right before, and I'm going to read it in context now. Every working of Christ in miracles was essential and to reveal to the world 
that there was a great work to be done on when? The Sabbath day for the relief of suffering humanity, but common work was not to be done. Now, I want you to note right there the principle here. Sometimes we get caught up in, pardon me, what we can't do, and we don't understand the reasoning. The reasoning here is, she says that Jesus did miracles on the Sabbath to teach us all a lesson. In fact, to teach the world a lesson. What was the lesson? Put it back up on the screen if you would. That there was a what? Great work to be done when? On the Sabbath for the relief of suffering humanity. Now let me ask you a very, to me, I think it's a very obvious and logical question. If I'm busy relieving suffering humanity on the Sabbath, where do I have time for ball playing, pleasure seeking, and swimming? I don't think the statement, and we're going to see as we go on, is a categorical condemnation of these activities. But it's trying to help us to know how to better spend the hours of the Sabbath. To follow in the footsteps of our Master. Now, notice again on the screen. It was to reveal this, uh, uh, there's a great work to be done on the Sabbath day for the relief of suffering humanity, but common work was not to be done. Pleasure seeking, ball playing, swimming was not what? If it was a necessity, it implies that it would have been okay. But a sinful, what's that word? Neglect of the sacred day sanctified by Jehovah. What's a neglect of something? Is neglect something you're doing wrong or something you're not doing right? Neglect is leaving something out. In the context, what's being left out? The point is simply being made that on the Sabbath day, there's a work should we, be, we should be doing for our fellow man. And when we get absorbed in the things that we like to do for pleasure, it takes away the time that could be given to our fellow man. And when you look at it that way, instead of a prohibition that you can't... Oh, that makes perfect sense. At least to me, it makes perfect sense. It's good counsel, isn't it? So sometimes we say, well, and why she was against having fun. No, that's not at all the point of the statement now, is it? But that's how we do with Ellen White. We take these things and we turn them around and, and make her a killjoy, and that's not what's happening there. Now, I want to go to another statement about bicycles. The bicycle craze. In fact, now this is the one I was going to share the other day, and I told you I was reading through it, and I caught something else I didn't catch before, right in the very context, the internal context itself, before going out and talking about the times, which I will. Counsels to Parents, Teachers, and uh, Students is the book, but I couldn't fit it all on the slide. Page 367 says, The exhibitions in the bicycle craze are an offense to God. His wrath is kindled against those who do such things. And I've had, you know, many people have read this and said, well, she was against bicycles. Okay, let's look at it again. Put it on the screen. And notice what she doesn't say. She doesn't say bicycles are offense to God. She says the exhibitions in the bicycle craze are an offense to God. She's not talking about bicycles. She's talking about something else that was going on in her day and the exhibitions related to it. Now, I was at the Smithsonian Museum, and I don't know how well you can make that out. We're in the, in the Wright Brothers section of the Smithsonian, and I found this on the wall, and right here, if you can read that underneath the picture, it says the bicycle craze. And this was something that happened when, you remember the big bicycles they had with the big front wheels that were very impractical? Well, when they came out with the bikes more like what we have today, you know, it was, it was a great new invention and people were excited about them and there was nothing wrong with that in and of itself, but it became this um, driving passion 
and, and, and infatuation with society at the time. It was the latest new thing. It also was a very costly, it, and, and we're not talking about, hey, that's going to be great transportation. It was a costly new fad. Uh, we are told, in fact, um, I have a few things here. You may have seen this in the Adventist Historic Village. If you show the slide, please. That's a picture of John Harvey Kellogg's bicycle. I mean, it seems odd if Ellen White was against bicycles to have one hanging from the White Estate Welcome Center, right? Well, she wasn't against bicycles. You understand what I'm saying? And you may have seen the pictures of Kellogg riding his bicycle around. She wasn't against bicycles. It was this bicycle craze she was addressing. And there are a number of things. I'm not going to take time to get into different principles you read when you read up on this. But one of those You'll see in this statement from Review and Herald, August 21, 1894, it says, instead of investing $100 in a bicycle, you know how much $100 was back in the late 1800s? Equivalent, I wrote it down here, the equivalent of that, well, somebody said like a car, but the difference is this, the bicycles were being used as a fad. It wasn't, it'd be different even then if they were for transportation or something. But the bicycle, the cost of a bicycle was a, equivalent to a quarter of a person's annual salary. Today's cost equivalent would be $13,266 from the sources I checked for bicycles. And it'd be a quarter of a person's income, nearly a quarter of a person's income, not being used for regular transportation, that kind of thing. And, you know, we, somebody even would say, well, today cars are expensive, but there are ways to finance cars, and then we can talk about debt and all this business. But the point is, there were families, Adventist families, that were investing this money in a bicycle and depriving their families of necessity so they could fit up with the latest fad and depriving the cause of God from means. And so the issue was very little about bicycle and much more to do about stewardship and influence and this kind of thing. Now, the list could go on. I've had people while I was here ask me about things like, like chess and checkers and and uh, dresses or pants and theater and man I'd love to get into it I really would there's just there's a wealth of things in fact I'll put, tell you I did this in those resources there's a fantastic article by a guy named Delmer Davis who wrote an article called the hotbed of immorality that was Ellen White's statement about the theater she said the theater is a hotbed of immorality incidentally it wasn't movie theaters they didn't have them then it was stage plays and he does a comparison he does a study of the two years of the context, she wrote that in Battle Creek and what was happening, what was showing on the stage. Anyway, it's a fascinating article to get down to really what she was addressing in that article where it says that uh, um, the theater was the hotbed of immorality. And Anyway, I'd love to get into some of that. But I want to tell you this, and I, I, I mentioned that even to, uh, to say this. My brother, Jim, was at a church recently and the pastor, and this is not uncommon, I've heard this a lot, the pastor got up and he made some jokes about how, you know, Adventists, remember, you're not, angels don't follow you into the movie theater, and ha, 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 ha. I don't think that's a, a good idea. To, to disparage, and, and I'm, the whole angels in the movie, Ellen White didn't say that, but she did say those places are places where fallen spirits congregate, and I can tell you that the holy angels don't just hang out where evil angels hang out. And so while you might not get the same statement, I just think mockery, notice this statement, uh, I need to give you background. Oh, there's so much I want to say here. This, this statement I'm going to share with you, it comes from four pages that were removed from the 1884 Great Controversy in the early edition. Oh, I'm wondering if I should give you a history lesson on this. You know, anybody read the book Early Writings? We're going to talk about it in a minute, so I'm going to tell you this now. 
Early writings is two books. The first section is Ellen White's Early Visions and what have you. The second half of it is, is Spiritual Gifts, Volume 1. Spiritual Gifts, Volume 1 was the first written account of Ellen White's Great Controversy Vision. Everything is condensed in there, which makes it really awesome to me, and I'll explain that in a little bit. But from there, throughout her life, God would expand the understanding of that vision. And so Spirit of Prophecy, Volume 1 became, I'm sorry, Spiritual Gifts, Volume 1 became Volumes 1, 2, 3, and 4 which then turned into Spirit of Prophecy, Volume 1, 2, 3, and 4. That was the early Conflict of the Ages series. Volume 4 was Great Controversy. But then that turned into Patriarchs and Prophets, Prophets and Kings, uh, Desire of Ages, Acts of the Apostles, and Great Controversy. Okay? So they grew over time, and I can't get into the whole detail of all that. You can read. There's all kinds of stuff written on it. But in the 1884 edition of Great Controversy, there were things that Ellen White changed before the publication. It, it, it actually was the 1888 edition, and then the plates wore out, and they came out with the 1911, which is the current edition. Okay? And Ellen White was alive during all those revisions, by the way. Somebody told me the other day, there's some website, and they're like, oh, Ellen White's writings were changed. We have the true great controversies. I've heard this stuff before. She was alive for all the revisions. Those are just distractions of the enemy, I'm telling you. The reason I'm telling you this is, this, when Great Controversy was published along with the Conflict Ages, those books were written for the general public, not for Adventists. I don't know if you're aware of that. And so Ellen White took out references where she used words like, I was shown or I saw because a person who wasn't of our faith might not understand that. Even though she explains the gift in the beginning of Great Controversy, there were four pages where she, in vision, saw a conference, a committee meeting between Satan and his angels. And Satan told his angels his strategy against God's people. Fascinating. So it was reprinted in the book Testimonies to Ministers where I'm sharing a piece of it from. Notice what she saw. Now this is the devil talking to his angels and specifically about how to get at the seven-day Adventists. Before we, uh, but before proceeding to these extreme measures, it's talking about the last day persecutions, laws, right? The Sunday laws, the, the, the buy and sell laws. Before we proceed to these extreme measures, we must exert all our wisdom and subtlety to deceive and ensnare those who honor the true Sabbath. We can separate many from Christ by worldliness, lust, and pride. They may think themselves safe because they believe the truth, but indulgence of appetite or the lower passions, which will confuse judgment and destroy discrimination, will cause their fall. Though those that have a form of, I'm sorry, rather, through those who have a form of godliness but know not the power, we can gain many who would otherwise do us harm. How? Notice this. Lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God will be our most effective helpers. Those of this class who are apt and intelligent will serve as decoys to draw others into our snares. Many will not fear their influence because they what? Profess the same faith. Now notice. We will thus lead them to conclude that the requirements of Christ are less strict than they once believed. And that by conformity to the world, they would exert a greater influence with worldlings. Thus, they will separate from Christ, then they will have no strength to resist our power, and ere long they will be ready to ridicule their former zeal and devotion. Remember when we used to be so strict? Ha, ha, ha. Remember when we had angels outside? Ha, ha, ha. You see what I'm saying? This was the devil's strategy. Boy, if there's nothing else that proves this woman was a prophet, this is it. Because we see this thing happening. Do not mock where God has led us. And I'm, I mean, and I'm not saying, there are things that people say are in Ellen White's writings and they're not, but sometimes we may mock things and 
Maybe the verbiage isn't in there, but the concept is. But I want to take some time in our, in our remaining moments to tell you really what led to my confidence in the spirit of prophecy, why I believe in Ellen White. I told you early in the week a couple times, my family left the Adventist church during the Desmond Ford crisis in the 1980s, and they, um, you know, Ellen White was a big issue with that. Walter Ray had come out with his book, The White Lie. Ellen White was a plagiarist. She was a false prophet, yada, yada, yada. And we, I'm t let me explain how it worked. Our family left the Adventist church so we could be free in Jesus. This is how it goes. You may have heard this story. This is the story people tell you. We left all the Adventists, all the rules of Adventism. Let me just be plain with you. The world is full of rules, and it's not just the Adventist church, and it's not just churches, and it's not just the Christian faith. Society has rules. Everything has rules. Our problem is with the rules that cut against the grain of the carnal heart. And we don't always realize that even. And as a young man in my mid-20s, the Lord, through several events in my life, began to awaken me to my need for Christ. And I'm not giving you the whole story, but I began going back to church. And going back to church, I still had this, I was checking out different churches, not just Adventist churches. But when I went into the Adventist church, I had an issue with Ellen White. And, and interestingly enough, so did a lot of my fellow church members. So I was like, oh, I'm not into Ellen White. Oh, neither are we. And so that was all cool. But there was a, I had a problem, and that problem was I had an interest in prophecy. Like, what, what lies ahead? Like, is, is there somebody who knows what's going to happen? So prophecy intrigued me at 25 years old, and there was one dear saint in that church, a good friend, Sandy Brewer, she's down in the Columbus Eastwood, uh, not Eastwood, but the uh, Worthington Seventh Avenue Church. She recommended a book to me. She said, yeah, I've got this great little book. It's called Early Writings. And it and in that book, Ellen White t talks about visions she had about the future and what it holds. Well, you know, I was like, oh, ah, Ellen White. But I was so drawn to knowing. And I picked up that book and I began to read it. And I remember reading that first, that first vision about her vision of heaven in that book. And I thought to myself when I read it, can there be such a place? Can there be such a place? And just the idea, and I, brothers and sisters, I, can't, I knew when I read it there was something different about it. And, and, and I'm telling you, I'm coming from a standpoint where I didn't want to like it. I kept going through that book, and of course I told you the last half was, was the great, that whole conflict series condensed down into like, almost like easy, convenient reading. And I was, I mean, I read that book and I was just blown away. And I knew there was something behind that gift of prophecy. And it gained confidence. I, my confidence began to grow in Ellen White. And through this, through this process of time, as my wife and I were coming into the church, and I hadn't been baptized yet, and I remember one Sabbath afternoon, I was sitting in our living room, and I, I have to confess here that I, many times when I read books, I like to start in the middle. <laughs> I'll just pick a chapter. So it's not like cover to cover. I'm like, oh, this sounds interesting. And I was leafing through the book, Great Controversy, and one of the chapters was called The Heralds of the Morning. Now, that sounds interesting, talking about prophecy and that kind of thing. It was actually talking about the second coming and then going back and drawing lessons from the first coming. And as I was reading that chapter, it begins talking, well, in the midst there, it talks about Christ in heaven and all the glory he had in heaven. And how he came down from his majesty to this earth. And when you read inspired writings, 
the Spirit of God does something in your mind. And it was almost like I was standing there aside in the court in heaven watching Lucifer's attacks and watching Christ's decision and watching him kind of step down. It's like I was standing and watching all this happening. I mean, this opening in my mind. And I had this sense, I had this real sense of what Jesus was giving up. I mean, I, I sense as much as a human being can have. I mean, what does it mean to give up the throne of heaven? And that chapter highlights how Jesus then was preparing for that greatest event, to be born into humanity. And how Joseph and Mary made that trip to Bethlehem. And how the angels of God came out of heaven, and I mean, this is, this is the event that has been foretold. And they went around among all God's people, and they were looking among all God's professed people for anybody that would be looking for the Messiah, and they couldn't find They went into the temple, they went among the priests and the leaders. Nobody cared. And I'm reading this, and I'm just, I'm getting this sense of injustice swelling up in my heart. Like, how dare they be that way to Jesus? After all, he's giving up, and they're like just indifferent. And then finally, those angels see some shepherds in the field that are pondering whether or not this would be the time the Messiah would come. And Ellen White says in the book, the whole, the, the plane just flooded with light. It's like, I don't know, the angels were going to go, hey, you go here, you go here, you go here. Nope, there's nobody, they're all right here. Boom, all of heaven comes down. Those poor shepherds. And you know, the angel said, hey, behold, we bring you great good times and great joy. Don't be afraid. And the shepherds went running in. And I'm reading this. And in the words of that chapter, and I'm not sure the, the, the order that this came in, but I, to this day I remember reading these words where Ellen White says that Joseph and Mary travel the, the weary traverse of the, of the, the length of the streets uh, in Bethlehem. And then she says, they come to that stable. She says, in a, in a wretched hovel prepared for cattle. There the Savior of the world is born. And I thought, I just, I was overwhelmed. I, I, I tell, I'm going to tell you, I began weeping aloud. I just thought, how could it be that Jesus, I mean, it was like I was that bystander in heaven and like, okay, he's going to come to the earth. He deserves everything. And what's he, oh no, sorry, we don't have room for you. We don't have room for you. But God's people don't have room for you. And he's born in a stable. And I just began to get angry. And I thought, that, those Jewish people, what was wrong with them? And then the Spirit of God put his finger on my heart. And he said to me, what have you done with Jesus? Oh, I wept. I just began crying aloud. And I don't cry aloud. I just don't. It's not something I do. I don't think my wife had ever heard me. And then all of a sudden, here's her husband. And she's looking at me like I'm just, all of a sudden, I start weeping. I, she thought I was losing my mind, I guess. But that was a turning point for me when I knew I wanted to Stop fighting against Jesus and give my life to him. Brothers and sisters, now, people say Ellen White's a false prophet. Just think this through with me. If you have a CEO of a company, and he hires a manager, and that manager takes every person they talk to, and he's sending them to the competition across the street, what's he going to do to that manager? He's going to fire him, right? I hired you to bring us customers, not send them customers. Are you with me on that? Folks, if Ellen White was a false prophet, the devil would have fired her a long time ago. You know how many people have been won to Jesus through the writings of Ellen White? Like, uh, <laughs> Satan comes up, false prophet. Hey, you're not understanding the false prophet thing? Okay, it's supposed to go this way. She's not a false prophet. 
And I know that from my own personal experience. I'm going to tell you, the gift of prophecy is a gift that keeps giving. Here's what I mean. Because I still read the writings of Ellen White, and they still speak to me. I was coming home from Camp Osable. I was doing some training up there for the weekend. We finished up about noon. I live about two hours away. I come home, and I remember that day I came home. I was in a really good mood. It was a nice day out. I come into my house, and when you come in, I park in the garage. I go into through the laundry hall. And as I come into the laundry hall, there on the floor, I notice that there's been some laundry soap spilled on the floor, and it either wasn't cleaned up or wasn't cleaned up to my satisfaction. So I'm coming in and bringing stuff in from the car, from being gone for the weekend. So I come in, I walk into my living room, and I say to my wife and my daughter who are sitting there, what, what is, what's up with the laundry soap? And then I go back out, and I get more stuff out of my car, and then I come back in, and my dog is all happy. She's all happy, wagging around to see me and everything. So I go up to her, and I say hi to the dog, and I play with the dog, and I go back out and get more stuff. Then I get done, I come into my wife, and I say, yeah, so what's up with the laundry soap? My wife looks at me and she's like, why don't you just go? Why don't you just go? Before you got here, we were having a nice conversation. It was a pleasant day. You've come in. You've yelled at us. You've greeted the dog. <laughs> and a typical guy, I was like, what? Right? What? <laughs> so I said, yeah, fine. I'm gonna t I took my car. I drove off to the park. I thought I'll take a walk and I'll just, you know, process I'll pray to the Lord how he needs to help her to see. <laughs> and in that time, you know, the Lord has a way, doesn't he? And I was impressed, among other things. You know, you did just greet the dog. You didn't say anything nice to your wife. I had read already statements where Ellen White talks about how when the father comes in the home, it ought to be bringing sunshine, not clouds. And so in that context, the Lord's impressed me. You, you need to go and get that book, Adventist Home, and read that chapter on the role of the husband and father. Oh, brothers and sisters, that was painful. But true. And as so many times in my experience, the Lord was able to put his finger. I don't want to be that man who came in and treated his wife that way. I don't want to be that man. You understand? And I thank God, as painful as it may be, that he's able to point out those things in the depths of our heart if only we'll listen. Because he's trying to make us more like Jesus. It is the gift that keeps giving if we let it give. I want to finish with a story from our history that I think is one of the most fascinating stories. It's right on these lines. About, I'm going to turn to that in a minute. And I'm going to skip that. <laughs> It's a story about a man named Stephen Smith. You may have heard the story back in the early days of the movement. Stephen Smith um, came into the Adventist faith, he and his wife, in the 1850s. And in the early Adventist movement, I mean, we didn't have a name yet, so the Advent movement, um, there were a lot of people who said, okay, Jesus didn't come in 1844. Maybe it's going to be 1845. Oh, maybe it's going to be 1846. Oh, be... And they kept setting dates. Well, Ellen White, the Lord spoke through Ellen White, and she very clearly said, look, there's not going to be another test on time. Stop the date setting. You're getting distracted. But Smith, he would get caught up into these things. You know, you had the Marian Party and the Messenger Party and some of these other things in our history, and he'd get caught up in all these time-setting movements. And Ellen White had counseled him on this, and he didn't, in his words, I didn't want some old woman telling me, or some woman, she wasn't an old woman at the time, I don't want some woman telling me what to do. And so he kept going on his way with these different movements. 
And so Ellen White wrote to him a letter. And when Stephen Smith picked that letter up at the post office in the day or mail carrier or something, and he saw that return address, Ellen White, oh, man, she's trying to tell me what to... And he was not going to read it. He determined. I'm not... Why he didn't throw it away, Lord only knows. He was frustrated. He went into his house and he thought, I'm not going to read this thing. And he threw it in the bottom of an old trunk. Maybe he thought he was going to read it when he cooled down, but he didn't. He forgot about it for 28 years. 28 years. He stayed on that path. He was going from this group to that group to the other. And you know that wears out after time. Every group you join fails. <laughs> oh, we got new light. Oh, we got new light. Yeah, they have in a church. And Elmwood's a false prophet. And they're Babylon. And they're, okay, I'm going to go over here and here and here and here. Oh, anti-Trinitarian. That, that, that's not our pioneer position. They didn't believe in the Trinity. We jump ship here, there, and there. They're all going to fail, brothers and sisters. They're all going to fail. As they did with Stephen Smith. There he is in his later years. Many years had passed. His wife stayed a member of the church. She got the Adventist Review on a regular basis. And it was sometime near that 28-year mark that Stephen Smith saw the review on the table and he picked it up and he read an article by Ellen White. And it just struck him with its clarity. He thought, that's, that's true, that's powerful, that's a... Hmm. And a little bit later he read another article. Had that same response. And he began to soften. Well, word came to him shortly after that that a young man named Eugene Farnsworth was going to be preaching nearby. His, the Farnsworth family had grown up nearby. He knew Eugene when he was a boy. He thought, I'm going to go out and hear him preach. I forget the name of the church. It was 12 miles away. He walked. Walked the 12 miles to go hear young Eugene preach. And the message he was preaching on that day was the remnant church. He sat and he listened to the message. And in those days at the end of the... You have to understand something... Stephen Smith had a reputation from everybody around. Because of these groups he'd been in, he was very critical. They said he had the most bitter, withering, sharp tongue that anybody knew of. In those days, after the message, you'd stand up and give testimony. At the end of the sermon, Stephen Smith was on his feet. And, of course, Farnsworth says, I didn't know whether to let him speak or not. What do you do? But I guess he had to get it out of his system. So they let Stephen Smith speak. And this is what he said. I haven't come to criticize you. I've quit that kind of business. Facts are stubborn things, but the facts are that those who have opposed this work have come to nothing, while those who have united with it have prospered. They've grown better, more devoted, and more godlike. Those who have opposed it have only learned to fight and debate, and they've lost all their religion. Well, he got up he shared his testimony. He walked home. But when he was walking home, something came to his mind that he hadn't thought about for 28 years. He thought about that letter. And he began to think, I wonder, where did I put that thing? And he got more and more curious. Where is it? I wonder what it said. And it quickened his pace as he went home. And he looked here and he looked there. And finally he found in that trunk that old letter unopened and unread. He had to sit down, <laughs> and he slipped the pages out of the envelope. In that letter, Ellen White had told Stephen Smith 28 years ago what would happen if he continued down the path he was going. But Stephen Smith never read that letter. 
until now. And now he only read an accurate history of his life. Not just what he'd done in technical terms, but the spiritual battles he'd faced and the discouragement he'd faced, and there it all was, outlined. If you go down, brother, this is going to happen, and this is going to happen, and your life's going to be like this. Stephen Smith went back to the next meeting, and young Farnsworth was preaching on the gift of prophecy in the remnant church, and at the end of that meeting, he stood up, and these were his words. I received a testimony myself, 20, it should say eight, 28 years ago, took it home, locked it up in my trunk, and never read it until last Thursday. I didn't read it because I was afraid it would make me mad, but I ended up being mad all the time anyway. Every word of that testimony is true, and I accept it. I've come to that place, or the place, where I finally believe that the testimonies are all from God. Don't miss this, brothers and sisters. If I had only followed the one that God sent me as well as the rest, it would have changed the whole course of my life and I would have been a very different man. Now he could only look back with regret. Brothers and sisters, let's not look back with regret anymore. Why would we turn our ear from the voice of God when he's been appealing to us as a people? And wanting to save us and wanting to make us the better men and women that reflect the image of Jesus. Oh, brothers and sisters, isn't that why you're a Christian? Isn't that what you want to be? How many of you want to be like Jesus? Let's pray together. Father in heaven, Father, as we've meditated on these things today, and once again you've spoken through clay, Lord, may the Spirit of God stir our hearts Lord, before we leave this camp meeting, may we be firmly committed to you, to Jesus Christ, to the cause of truth. May we be open to receiving your counsel that it may shape our lives and our characters so that we can reflect the image of Jesus and one day very soon enter into eternity with him. We ask and pray these things in his name and for his sake. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.